you're reading verses 24 and then 34 to 48. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. If not, I think the text will be behind me. But hear the word of the Lord. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Again, the question we're answering this morning is, what does our messiness teach us about the gospel? And I think uh, to orient yourself to that, to even start in on the answer to that question, you got to understand the bit of the chapter that I, I didn't read. Um, and what's happening in the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 10 is that Peter is staying with a small church in Joppa. He's up on the roof while apparently they're fixing him lunch, and the Lord appears to him, gives him a vision. And in parallel to that, this man, Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, that means he's a man who's in charge of 100 uh, Roman soldiers, has also received a vision. And in that vision, he said, hey, go send to Joppa, send for a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with a different Simon, but tell him to come down and you need to listen to what he has to say. And while uh, that is happening, the vision that Peter has received is what I take to be like one of those big parachute blankets that you have at the beach, you know? The Lord keeps lowering down this blanket and it's filled with all of these animals that Jews wouldn't normally eat. And what the Lord says, if you have red letters in your Bible, is rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter does what Peter does. He says, by no means, Lord, never ate anything that's common or unclean. And then he gets corrected what God has made clean did not call common. What's that mean? What's happening there? See, the, right in the, in the middle of this is the very first lesson of the gospel. But uh, to understand it, you got to know that the Jews understood themselves as being in right relationship with God because of their ethnicity, because they were physical descent or physical children of Abraham. That's what made them right with God. And that the nations, i.e. the Romans, 
this Roman soldier who he's about to go see, in order for him to be right with God, he's going to need to become Jewish first. That's what they anticipated. And yet what the Lord himself does is say, Peter, if I've made it clean, don't call it unclean. See, Peter's about to walk down uh, into the household of this Roman centurion who has his whole family gathered. And what's so fascinating is he's about to preach to them a very remarkably similar gospel to the one that he's been sharing in Jerusalem all these years, or all, the, all these, these last couple of months. What's that mean? If their unloveliness doesn't exclude them from the gospel, then your loveliness does not include you in the gospel. Do you see that? The distinction being here that there was a lesson for the Jews in the ingrafting of the Gentiles. And what it taught them is the same way that Gentiles didn't need to become Jews to come to Christ, your Jewishness doesn't make you a Christian. Do you see that? What's that mean? That means in our lives as Christians, we have this tendency to collapse back into self-righteousness. I'll give you a little bit of an example of it. Um, you know, Peter is, is amazing, but uh, I think as far as I can tell, this is his fourth time that he said no to Jesus. <laughs> the first time is he's, um, they're on the road and uh, Peter's the first one to like articulate the confession of our faith. And he says, um, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, yeah, but I'm going to get killed. And Peter says, by far be it from you, Lord. To which Jesus calls him Satan, which is not a good outcome. Uh, but then later, after that correction, they're going to walk, um, they're going to be on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed before they have the Passover meal together. Jesus comes along to wash Peter's feet. And what does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. I need to wash your feet. And then Peter, Jesus says, Listen, I need to wash your feet. And then he says, okay, well, don't wash my feet. Then like wash my whole body, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, just stop, Peter, let it be. So later that same night, when they're talking about who's gonna betray him, Jesus, um, Peter says to Jesus, listen, even if I have to die with you, I won't leave you. To which Jesus says, you're gonna deny me three times tonight. Why am I walking you through all that? We're 10 chapters into the spirit of Christ falling on the church. We're 10 chapters into Peter not being the pope, not being the bishop, but being the chief of the apostles. And do you know what is happening in Peter's life? The patterns that were true before Peter came to Christ continue to be true after he has come to Christ. Do you see that? Your messiness stays with you as you go. Let me give you one particular one that I want us to talk a little more in detail about. Um, you know, one of Peter's um, tendencies to slide into, you know, if there's any doctors or optometrists in here, y'all would know um, what I'm about to say, but they say the most prevalent disease state in humanity is called presbopia. Presbopia is just your eventual need for readers. The reason it's so prevalent is because it does not matter who you are. If you live long enough, you will get it. I tend to think that they're wrong. 
The most prevalent disease state of humanity, and particularly of Christians, is the disordered slide back into self. Here's why it's more prevalent than presbyopia. You're born with it. You don't have to grow into it. It comes with you, but every single one of you, including me, has it. How does Peter do that? You know, Peter here uh, in verse 14 says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Peter slid, do you see that? Who the subject of that sentence is? Peter has slid into self. Where Jesus says, remember John 13, Peter, knock it off, right? You gotta remember that Peter is the one who in John 21 is restored three times in tears from his own apostasy, right? His apostasy meaning his, his capacity for rejecting Jesus. That same man now sliding into, look at what I've never done in my life, right? Fast forward to Galatians 2, and you're going to find that there comes a day where Peter and Paul end up in the same town with the same church. And Peter has been there with him for a little while, and then some, some Jewish Christians show up. And it tangles Peter up a little bit, and Peter stops eating with the Gentiles, because Peter starts focusing on what he should and shouldn't do. And then what happens? Along comes Paul, and Paul has to correct him and say that's not the gospel. The primary disorder of the Christian life is although you start in Christ, you will regularly slide back into self. If you love uh, Christian memes, you've probably seen this one, but um, have you all seen the sheep that's like stuck in the ravine and the shepherd comes along and I mean, he's good and stuck. He can't get his hips all the way down into the ravine and the, sh- the shepherd comes along and he grabs him and he does one of those like shot putter kickbacks, you know, and he's got to yank him and he yanks the sheep out of the hole and then literally the sheep runs from the shepherd, takes two bounds and falls right back in the ravine. That is the Christian life. Except your collapse isn't just out of moral uncleanness back into moral uncleanness. Your regular disorder, your collapse collapse is out of rest in Christ back into trying to rest in yourself. So the question I have for you this morning to wrestle with is how are you stuck on you? Seriously. In the, like yesterday, or this week, or Advent? What has you tangled up about you? Is it, man, I crushed it with that present yesterday. Right, you wake up this morning just repping, I can't, I thought that was gonna be good and it was better than I thought. You know who's the subject of that? You are. Or maybe you're like, I cannot believe I said that yesterday. I I like, I don't know how we're recovering from this one. You know who's the subject of that? You are. See, the collapse into self has uh, two patterns, not just one. There's either the slide into despair or the slide into pride, right? Both of those are just me multiplied by whether I think I'm doing well or whether I think I'm failing. Failing focused on me leads to despair, 
succeeding focused on me leads to pride. The invitation of the Christian life is out of yourself and into Christ. See, that's what Jesus comes along and corrects Peter on as he says, Peter, what God has made clean, don't call common. Don't call unclean. See, if Jesus is going to come along and correct Peter, then he's got to have two things. He's got to have the authority to do it, right? And he also has something to call Peter into. You can't just be called out of something without being sent into something new. What is it that Jesus calls Peter out of, calls us out of, calls you out of? You know, it's really interesting as you look at verse 34, uh, the very end of verse 34, there's this fascinating word. And in English, uh, it's partiality, which is a good translation. Like that's, that's good. It means that, except that's fairly like 1970s black and white TV for it, you know? The higher depth, the thicker understanding of it, the thicker meaning of it, some commentators have translated it respecter of persons. What they're getting at is when someone would come into a situation, if someone were to evaluate their externals and if they were all cleaned up, they'd get preferential treatment. Or if they were messy, they would get sort of shoved aside. It's this sense of who you are is the largest uh, indicator factor in the situation. What Peter has learned through Jesus' correction of him saying, what God has made clean, don't call common, is that the primary way that God relates to people in Christ is not about them. It's about him. Let me say that more clearly to you this morning. The way God in Christ relates to you is not about you. It's about him. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm in that season with my kids where my oldest one is learning multiplication right now. They've made it, Caleb and Jenner over there. Um, And so they're learning multiplication. And one of the things that's so fascinating in math is um, in addition, you learn like, hey, one number plus another number makes a new number. One number number subtracted from another number makes a new number. One number multiplied by another number makes a new number. What happens if you multiply a number by zero? Becomes zero, right? Seven times zero equals zero. Seven million times zero becomes zero. Negative 700 million times zero becomes zero. This isn't a math lesson. (laughs) Whoever you are multiplied by union with Christ becomes Christ. That's the logic of the scriptures. If you show up and you're minus 700 million multiplied by Christ, you know what that makes you? Christ. You show up and you think you're 700 million. You know what you need? Multiplied by Christ. See, the thing that Jesus calls Peter into is into rest in himself. I mean, into rest in Christ, not an out of rest in Peter. 
You know, in, uh, in the Bible, and theologians have unpacked this a bit, but in the Bible, they talk about faith and repentance, right? And theologians have said those two are twins of each other. And the reason they say that is because you can't turn towards something without turning away from the other thing, right? It's just a metaphysical reality that you can't turn toward Christ without having necessarily turned away from whatever you were previously facing. Usually at this point, we're used to saying, I got it. Turning towards Jesus means turning away from moral uncleanness. Turning towards Jesus means turning away from all of my baggage. Do you know what the gospel is? The primary rubric of the gospel. Turning toward rest in Christ means turning away from rest in yourself. That's the invitation of the gospel, is out of yourself and into Jesus. Let me give you two things. How do I know when I'm resting in myself? How do I know when I need to turn from myself and back towards rest in Jesus? You know, I was told you I was speeding over here. And um, oh, there is a police officer here. Shoot. Sorry, man, you left, right? He's like, oh, man, here he goes. I'm gonna have to give him a ticket if I don't leave. Um, didn't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, my speedometer was helpful, but I haven't filled up my air in my tires in a while. And I haven't changed the oil in a while. And so I have regular dashboard lights that are going off, Right? In that same uh, letter where Paul is correcting Peter in Galatians 2, in Galatians 5, he's going to talk about, we're familiar with the singular fruit of the Spirit, but he also talks about the deeds of the flesh, all of, our, all of our craziness. Part of that is also like our anxiety and our panic and our stress and the fragmentation of our lives and our overwork and all of the cascade of isms we just talked about over at Beaches on Christmas Eve. All of those things, listen, are dashboard lights that just go return to Jesus. They're examples, they're symptoms pointing to the fact that you're attempting to live from yourself. I'll give you an example about uh, repentance. You know, the invitation of the gospel is into repentance. That's out of yourself into Jesus. But we respond to it with penance, don't we? What that means is like, I am aware of my sin. Now I've collapsed into morbid self-introspection. And what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start meeting out punishment for myself. Did you hear how many times in that I just said self? Like a lot. I could have said it a lot more times. The center of that whole entire logic, the logic of penance, is you. The invitation of the gospel is repentance. It's a returning to Jesus. <laughs> So how do I return to Jesus? If, I, if, if the dashboard light is going off, what do I do? I want to give you five really quick ways that you can return to Jesus, what, what the, the pattern of the Christian life is. Look with me at verse 30. I just did this at the beaches. <laughs> yeah, the second half of verse 38. 
you're struggling with doing good. Like, I'm not sure I'm making anything out of my life. I'm not sure this is all working together. I'm I'm not sure that I'm making any kind of difference. You heard how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know, when you've become suffocated by whether or not your life has meaning or not, what do you do with that? Do you collapse into self and try to figure out how to climb out of it? Or the invitation of verse 38 is to look to Jesus, who is the one who went about doing good. You see that? Let me give you another one. I've collapsed into sin. Like I've blown it and I do not know how to clean it up and climb out of it. What do I do? End of verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. I don't know if you all did uh, the priesthood of Christ, but we did at Beaches. And one of the things we talked about is the high priest would walk in on the day of atonement with Israel on his shoulders. And in the same way, Christ as our priest shows up and picks up our humanity, wears us to the cross, wears us on the day of atonement. And here's the thing about your sin. It's if, if you're in Christ, If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, hear this as an invitation, not condemnation. But this for those of you who are in Jesus. If you are in Christ, your sin is not yours anymore. Jesus didn't just come pay it. He didn't just cover it. You know what he did? He came and he picked it up, put it on his shoulders, and like the king who has the right to it, said it's mine. When you've collapsed into sin, what you do is what verse 39 invites you into is run to the reality that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You know, he's invited Peter into no longer calling unclean what he's made clean. That's some of the primary patterns of the Christian life is that your sin as you become aware of it. You realize by the work of the Spirit that Jesus has wiped it away. And he's done that on the tree. The place for your cleanness is the blood of Christ. But then Jesus doesn't just leave you standing there naked. He clothes you. And the thing he clothes you with is, if you read all this, uh, verse 36, you heard all about how uh, you yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him and were witnesses of that. That Jesus lived a long, ordinary, normal life from his birth all the way to his death and through the whole bit of it went around doing good. That what Jesus does is even as he's wiped you of your sin is clothe you with himself, clothe you with his righteousness. 
See, the invitation of the gospel is for you to stop defining yourself by yourself and allow the king who became your priest, not just to be your definition, but to define you. One of the things we talk about at the beaches is, you know how to know you're forgiven? Jesus said so. It's not because you feel like it. Don't have anything to do with how you feel about it. You can feel forgiven and Jesus says you're not. That's a problem. If Jesus says you're forgiven, it doesn't, you don't have to feel like it. You understand that? Let me give you three more real quick. I'm tired of struggling. Like I'm tired of being the sheep that keeps falling back in the ravine. My whole life has been this collapse from Jesus back into myself and I make it maybe two bounds and I'm stuck again. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. You know, Jesus got back up out of the grave as the new creation and in being the new creation has secured for those in union with himself the reality that they will be made new. For as long as we have read this book, Peter has not stopped saying no to Jesus. As long as we've read this book, Peter has not stopped sliding back into self-righteousness. But you know what the Bible teaches? A day is coming when Peter will wear a body again, and on that day, the slide will be over. You know what the hope and the rest you have in the midst of your regular collapse into self is that Jesus has already gotten out of the grave and the new humanity that's his will be yours one day. I think we're okay on time. I'll give you two, quick, two more real quick. I need help. Like I just can't do it anymore. I don't know how to navigate all the situations. I don't have the energy for it. I'm not sure it's going to work out. The past keeps catching up. Like, I just, hmm. You done that one before? Verse 41. He didn't appear to everybody, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Now listen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Do you know who eats and drinks? Human bodies do. And when Jesus got up out of the grave, he didn't dissolve back into God the Son, but he remained the God-man Jesus wearing your humanity. What that means is today, in the throne room of heaven, the place where all of history is being ordained and flowing down from, do you know who's on the throne? a man wearing your humanity. And you know what he's doing as he's ordering history. He's also interceding for you. So whether the thing you're stuck in is from somebody else's doing, you can be sure it didn't sneak by Jesus. And if it's your doing, you can know that he's in it with you. Let me give you the fifth way you can come on out of yourself and go into Jesus. I feel so insecure. <laughs> such deep longing for this to go differently, not just my sin, but like my life. I'm not sure I'm on the right side of history or I made the right career choice or I made the, whatever it is. 
And he commanded, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that's Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. The day of Christ is coming, and on the day of Christ, there is one rubric. In Christ and everybody else. You see that? And you can, I'm not threatening you, that should be insanely restful for you because here's why. When you show up on that day, you can believe that if the king of the cosmos who made it picked you up and put you on and humiliated himself to wed you to himself, do you know what will be sure on that day is he will keep you for himself. You can be absolutely sure that the capital F future, not tomorrow, but the new heavens and the new earth and the new age and that final thing is going to be amazing because of who bought you. So how should we respond? How should we live in light of the gospel's invitation out of ourselves and into Christ? I'll give you three quick things. You know what I love about this story? Um, I don't mean this pejoratively, but I just, I love how much of a mess Peter is because I feel so at home with him. I like, um, he feels like he's from the same town I'm from. Um, uh, maybe the same living room, you know. Uh, if you hear nothing else of what I said this morning, please hear what I'm about to say. The gospel that Peter was bringing to Cornelius, the messy Roman centurion, is no different gospel than the, than the gospel Peter needed on his way to Cornelius. Where do you think Peter got the whole clean, unclean thing from? Jesus. Do you know what that means? You don't just begin in Christ, but the whole of the Christian life is in Christ. That's why it's called the Christian life. That the pat maturity, we talk about it at the beach, but um, maturity in the Christian life means, can I go from being a Christian for five minutes to being a Christian for 10 minutes? Maybe next year I can make it 30 minutes before I've collapsed into self. Maybe next year I can make it a day. You know, I don't think anybody's ever made it more than six days. That's why the Lord calls us back to worship the first morning of every week. You do not have the human capacity to remain in rest in Christ for more than six days. That's why you need worship. I'm not gonna, that's a different sermon. Maturity in the Christian life is primarily your ability to stay with Jesus. How do you do that? You know, the best um, metaphor I could come up with this one uh, for helping us understand our union with Christ is actually the one the Bible, I thought I came up with it and then I was like, oh, the Bible does that, um, is marriage. You know, you're, if you're married or you've been to a wedding, your marriage begins at the altar with the vows you take at the altar. But it never really moves on from the altar, does it? Certainly you leave the chapel, 
but the whole of your marriage is lived inside those vows to the point where those vows become when you find yourself deviating from them, what do you do? You return to them. Not just to the vows, but you come back inside the promise you've made. You see that? That as you walk in marriage, you attempt to walk inside the promise of the altar. Your marriage never leaves that moment. Now, I'm not saying here what you need to do is make sure you keep your promises to Jesus. What I'm saying is the promise of the gospel is the invitation into rest in Jesus in the command to come on in out of yourself. You start there, you stay there, and when you deviate from there, you return to there. Again, so how do we do that? Uh, I love your, you know, your most common help, your moment-by-moment help. Like your, your, this after, when you leave, right now while I'm talking, your help is the one that Peter gets. What corrects Peter when Peter collapses into his own cleanness? The letters are red. It says, what God has made clean, don't call common. It's the spirit of Christ that returns you to rest. One way you know that it's the spirit of Christ speaking is whether or not it sounds like rest in Jesus or not. If it sounds like a whole bunch of you, it's probably not him. Do you hear that? The second way is what I love about the gospel is the same gospel that calls you in out of yourself and into rest in Christ doesn't then shove you back into self to stay there. Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't like say, come on in out of yourself, but hey, you make sure you stay, you know. So he's giving you his spirit. Just hear that. He, it is not your union with Christ that keeps you in Christ. It is Christ's union with you. You can't hang on tight or long enough to ride the ride of life, but you know who can. Jesus does. The second thing he gives you, look at uh, verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness. The spirit can be a little amorphous. It can, it can feel like, I'm not really sure what Jesus is saying to me, what to do. That's okay. You have a Bible. Uh, there's a man named Dane Ortland. We love him at the beach. He wrote two books, Gentle and Lowly and Deeper. And we're just like, we've been using it for leader development and stuff like that. But in both of those books, he regularly says, this is why you need a Bible. One of the primary, I would say the primary reason you need a Bible is because who Jesus is and what God is doing in Christ doesn't match your instincts. And so you need a fixed authority that has entered history that will correct you. That's what he means by the prophets. Let me say that to you differently. You know, when the, when the leper, I mean, the, sorry, the paralytic gets laid down um, through the roof and Jesus turns to him and he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. All the scribes and the Pharisees, they start arguing amongst themselves going like, who's this guy who thinks he can forgive sins? Like he can't. They were having a debate about this line of sin and who can forgive it. And the only thing that was clear to them is Jesus was outside of it. And so what Jesus does is he turns and he looks at the guy and he looks at them and he says, what's easier for me to tell him that he's forgiven or to tell him to get up and go home? 
And then he turns and he looks at them and he looks at the guy and he says, just so it's clear that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your mat and go home. That guy didn't feel like he could get up and walk. He didn't feel like he was forgiven. You know why he could get up and go home? You know why he was forgiven? Because the Son of Man said he was. That's why you need a Bible. Is the second place that you regularly return to Jesus is in the scriptures. I'll give you a third one. Um, let me just read it to you. Keith, I'm sorry. That was a, that was a, that was a when preachers going long apology. Turn with me to Galatians 2 if you want to. If not, I'll just read it to you. But when Cephas, this is verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Cephas is Peter, by the way. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's Jewish Christians. You get that? Peter became afraid of the Jewish Christians that just showed up. And this is the Peter we just read about who's already been corrected by Jesus, who himself was the first one to go to the Gentiles and say, like, there's nothing that excludes you from the God. Okay. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, that's Paul's missionary partner, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the Ten Commandments, the mission plan they had for reaching the Gentiles. The friendship. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of everybody, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You know what Peter needed? Gospeling. Peter needed a gospel person who would gospel him. That's what you need. You don't just need other Christians. You don't just need other people. You specifically need gospel people who are gospeling you. Do you see that? There's a difference. There's a difference between your Christian friends who you go to the Gator game with, or maybe you're a Georgia fan, who you cook out with, who you watch stuff with. There's a difference between them and are there other people in your life who see when you are wandering into yourself and tell you to go back to Jesus. That's what you need. And the beauty of that is that's exactly what Christ has given. That's what he's called the church. So what you need is gospel people who are gospeling you. Very last comment. There's one other bit um, of Jesus's invitation out of ourselves and interest in him that's meaningful for us. And if you look with me back in Acts 10, down at verse 24, that first verse we read. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius, that's that Roman centurion, was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. You know, Cornelius didn't, like, go off to seminary to get his questions answered. And then having gotten them answered, gone to, like, an evangelism explosion course to figure out how to articulate to his best friends 
the doctrines of Jesus and the, the uh, like, perspicuity of Scripture. Cornelius invited his closest friends and relatives into the same gospel that was happening to him as it was happening to him. You see that? That's what gospel hospitality is. Gospel hospitality isn't mean the gospel tells me to host people so I open my home. Surely Cornelius did that and surely you should do that. Gospel hospitality is as Jesus is doing something in your life that doesn't, it does belong to you, but it doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to your close relatives, to your neighbors. You know, I was telling this, this isn't to make it about me. I just want to give you an example. I was telling this to the to beaches this morning. I was on the drive down South Beach Parkway on my way to worship, and the Lord confronted me in the car. And uh, it was glorious. I was like, I think he, he wrecked my life, like, while I'm riding. And it was about, um, what do I anticipate from him? Do I anticipate needing to get up and serve him, or do I anticipate being provided for by him? You know, the way that like a spouse will get up and make breakfast for their other spouse. I woke up this morning and I was just like behind where I wanted to be with the sermon. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pull, pull it all together. And then in, rather than it taking hours, it came together in like seven minutes. Jesus had just made breakfast, you know? So I had time to like hop on the bike, go for a ride with my son. You know what I did when I got to church? I went and found three of the guys I'm closest to in the church and I walked straight up to them and I told them the story. I didn't tell them about like the hypostatic union. I said, I think Jesus just destroyed my life on the ride up here. Can I, you want to know what happened? And they're like, yeah, I guess I want to know, you know? That's gospel hospitality. What I wanted you to see this morning is what is our messiness teach us about the gospel. It teaches you a couple of things. It teaches you that in the same way that your uncleanness, your messiness doesn't exclude you from the gospel, your cleanness doesn't include you. What includes you is whether you're in Christ or not. That's the home of the Christian. What that means is the same place that you started at your baptism. You know, we're not doing this morning, but we just took communion at beaches. And what's sweet about the one sacrament that the Lord gave the church to regularly return to, like you start at baptism, but every time he makes the invitation to his table, you come to it and it's him feeding you. It's him for you. It's not you for him. You come messy, you leave fed. That's the Christian life. But for you to do that, for you to come in out of self and stay out of self doesn't involve self. It involves the spirit of Christ, your engagement with the ordinary means of grace, which is called the Bible, worship. And then it takes gospel people gospeling one another. But what you do is, as that's happening to you, that doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to everyone around you. And so you yourself are a gospel person gospeling the people around you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you always feed us, that you always give yourself for us. That, Lord, the invitation of the Christian life isn't primarily out of moral uncleanness into moral cleanness, but it's out of self and into you. That's why it's an invitation out of despair and pride and into rest. 
That's why it's an invitation into joy, an invitation into fearlessness. And so, Lord, I pray for Christ Church East. Pray for this group of people this morning who you came, picked up who they are and put it on yourself and continue to wear it, that you would make them a people who more and more live from their rest in you. Make them a people filled with joy, rest, and fearlessness. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.